Welcome to God's Unfolding Promise to Renew the Whole Universe, the official podcast of Grace Lutheran Church Confirmation Class. In today's episode, we are talking about Chapter 4 from Man and Mercy. And in Chapter 4, Dan Erlander talks us through the covenant. And so basically, I kind of wanted to begin, I guess, by looking at what the definition of covenant. What do we mean when we talk about covenant? I know sometimes uh, on an individual level, and this is perhaps the way it has been understood if you've used it in school or heard somebody else refer to it, is it's an agreement, an agreement to sort of form an alliance or to do something or to not do something. And that works on that individual level, but a covenant in the Old Testament times and for the Bible in general was it went beyond just an agreement between individuals, but really was about an agreement between, say, a sovereign and his or her subjects. Uh, fancy word for that would be uh, vassals. And, then, and so in this case, what is essentially going on with the covenant and the covenant gift is God is becoming the sovereign, the, the, the king of this nation. And then this is the nation of slaves who have been liberated by God from slavery in Egypt. And now they find themselves in the wilderness, where last time we met, we talked about sort of the manna. And so it has been sustaining them in that wilderness, sustaining them both with manna and then uh, water, which would have been in that next chapter of Exodus. And now... After some time of doing this, they come to Mount Sinai, where God is going to establish a covenant with them. And this covenant is really sort of based on ancient Near Eastern covenants between kings and those who would uh, and those who would be the subjects, uh, in particular, subject kingdoms. And essentially, there were things that the king would do promised such things as making sure that they were protected, making sure that uh, not necessarily providing food and clothing and that kind of stuff, but making sure that there was access to it um, through, you know, commerce, trade, etc. And on the on the flip side, the, the subjected kings, uh, who were no longer kings, I guess, but were now subjects of sort of the, the king, but were sort of the leaders of their nation and people would also promise to do some things. And they usually ended up promising a few additional things than what the, the king did. But essentially their main promise was that they would be loyal to that king. And as long as that king was in place, they would continue to sort of follow and obey his or her commands and wishes and pay tribute and et cetera, et cetera. And these covenants were usually then finished by a list of sort of curses, things that would happen to the one who broke the covenant, as well as promises. And if we were to read all of Deuteronomy, we would see those pieces within the book of Deuteronomy as well. But we don't need to go quite that far into covenant for understanding what God is trying to do here at Mount Sinai in the wilderness. But I think the imagery of God saying that I will be sort of the leader, I will be the king of this people that I plan to make into 
a new kind of nation is a sort of a key element to understanding uh, the Ten Commandments and all these other. When we kind of understand the Ten Commandments and the rest of the biblical laws within that context, within the context of covenant, of God being sort of the sovereign and the people being sort of the vassals or the, the subjects to the sovereign, we begin to see the Ten Commandments and the rest of the biblical laws, what we call biblical laws, in a slightly different way. The laws of the Bible, including the Ten Commandments, I think are some of the most often misunderstood pieces of biblical literature. When we think of laws, we think of specific things that we cannot do. In some cases, we can do them, uh, but they're very clearly defined and well prescribed. Think of speed limits, for example. Um, I know most of you probably are not yet driving, but you will be shortly. But I'm sure you have paid attention to sort of speed limit signs along the, the highway, and they are very specific. If it says 60 miles per hour, we know that anything above that is potential for, for trouble uh, if you happen to pass a state trooper. Now, there's a lot of gray area in how the state trooper sort of uh, interprets that and what they want to pull somebody over for and not pull somebody over for. But in terms of the law, it is very kind of prescriptive uh, in that it says, this is the speed, don't go above it. Um, laws or rules at school work this way as well. If you are out wandering the halls without a pass and a teacher catches you, the very prescriptive, specific, you're probably going to find yourself at least with a warning, if not in detention, depending on the teacher or how many times they've caught you. Um, all of those kinds of things. So we think of them as things that sort of maybe curb our freedom to a certain extent um, and essentially proscribe our behavior. But when it comes to the laws of the Bible, including the Ten Commandments, we need to sort of slip out of the mindset of prescription and think more in terms of description. These are not sort of do's and don'ts in the way that we understand the laws of United States society, but are trying to describe a way of life, uh, a way of being in the world. And in the case of the covenant at Sinai, God is trying to describe a new way of being in the world, a way that is different from the way of being in Egypt. And I think uh, Dan Erlander does a very good job of kind of highlighting this point there on page 11, where he has the illustration of the, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. And we often think of the two tablets. The first tablet is the ones that are the commandments that have to deal with God. The second tablet are the commandments that have to do with sort of human relationship and with each other. And the way that he describes this, I think, does a, or the way that he illustrates this does a great job of describing what it is that we are trying to, what I'm trying to get at when I say biblical rules or the biblical laws are more about description as opposed to proscription. And so we have him saying, you know, dear partners, I choose you and liberated you. Therefore, you will trust only me. You will bring honor to my name and you will keep the Sabbath day. And then on the next Sabbath, and when you are tempted, 
to follow the way of Egypt or the way of the people around you, you will refuse. You will honor your parents and you, you will not kill. You will not sort of run after his spouses, another spouse, etc., etc. It's those two kinds of concepts. That those In the first sentence, I chose you and liberated you. And when you are tempted to follow the ways of Egypt and the people and the ways of the people of the world, that I think really illustrate what the Ten Commandments are trying to get at and what the biblical laws, all of them, are really trying to get at. And so when we get caught up in the very specifics of them, when we try to essentially say, oh, well, this law over here still applies, but this one over here doesn't. You know, for example, within the same kind of few sentences of each other, in the book of Leviticus, we have a law against men not laying with men. With And then in between... Right in that, within that same kind of paragraph, or in the next paragraph, we also have a law that says, "Do not mix seed of two different kinds in a field, and do not wear clothing of two different kinds um, at all." Both of which we have largely ignored in our modern day. Our agriculture is actually absolutely dependent upon sort of the mixing and the blending of the seeds, and all of our clothing is also a mixed blend. Very few of us wear 100% cotton um, or hemp or whatever and uh, for a whole host of reasons. And so how? And so when we try to focus on the very specifics and use them in a very prescriptive way, we end up, I think, missing the point of what books like Leviticus like Deuteronomy, Numbers, and most of Exodus are really trying to get at. And that is essentially to describe a way of life that is different from that of Egypt, that is in accordance with the way that God intended for the world to work from the very beginning. In many ways, this is what God has been continually trying to get back to doing, is trying to get back to sort of that image of paradise that we found in that second chapter of Genesis. That's what God is trying to do in the exodus from Egypt. That is what God is trying to do with this people Israel. That is what God is trying to do with Jesus and sending Jesus into the world as well. And then and when Jesus gets executed of resurrecting Jesus with so this sort of dream, this idea of renewing all of creation and all the entire cosmos can come to fruition. And we still haven't gotten there yet. But this is what God intends and wants for the entirety of the world. And so on the one hand, we have a tendency, I think, to really misunderstand the commandments and that we try to make them all about and read them in a very proscriptive way as opposed to a descriptive way. And then second of all, we tend to sort of view them as obligation, as something that hampers our ability to be fully human, our end, our freedom. But in reality, as I think Dan Erlander in this chapter in chapter four does a good job illustrating, 
by viewing them in such a way, we essentially curb our own sort of, we, we essentially curb human flourishing by on our own. We will talk more about this in class. These are very sort of hard concepts to grab a hold of, which is why I think it is so misunderstood. But if we can sort of begin to sort of digest and see and understand how these laws, such as the Ten Commandments, are in fact gift, we begin to understand what it means to be Christian at a much deeper level. And that, I think, is the key I hope we can take away from this chapter.